This morning, I want us to consider one very simple but very important question. Can we actually trust God? I mean, week in and week out, we talk about and sing about his goodness and we proclaim our trust and devotion to him. But can we actually trust him? And what I mean is literally entrust ourselves to him no matter what he chooses to allow in our world, no matter what he chooses to allow in our lives. Can we actually trust God no matter what? That's what I'd like us to think together about this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 22? Acts 22. Two weeks ago, we resumed our series in the book of Acts, and Brian challenged us, saying that until you found something that you are willing to die for, you have not yet found anything that is worth living for. And last week, he took us on Paul's continuing journey to Jerusalem and his much-anticipated opportunity to share the good news with his own people. And how did that go? Not well so far. And as we pick up the story today, I'm not going to bury the lead. It gets even worse. In Acts 21 and 22, we read that Paul was bludgeoned by the Jews before he ever even got a chance to share a word. And then when he does, he was rejected by the crowd and arrested by the Romans, then nearly flogged. But the Roman soldiers stop when they realize that he is a Roman citizen and now they want to get to the bottom of this situation. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 22 and verse 30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, the Roman commander released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Now, commentators love to make much of these verses. Was Paul out of line? Was he being arrogant, disrespectful? But put yourself in his shoes. It has been 20 years. The last time that he was with the entire council was when they condemned and killed Stephen and Saul was there in wholehearted approval. The last time that he was face-to-face -face with the high priest, a different high priest, is when he was being given letters and authority to go to Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians. And now here he is, 20 years later, and he has faithfully served God through much suffering and difficulty all over the known world. For 20 years, he has been hounded and haggard, and beaten, and abused, and slandered by Judaizers who claim to be the leaders of the people of God. 
So it makes total sense in verse 1 that Luke says he was looking intently at the council. I'll bet his gaze and the power and confidence of his God-given conviction pierced every soul in that room. And Paul begins his defense. Knowing that they know all about him, he begins by simply saying that all that he has done was done with a clear conscience in the sight of God himself. And that statement alone so angers the high priest that he orders Paul struck. And Paul, the learned Pharisee, responds in verse 3 with indignance because he knows what they did just violated the law according to Leviticus 19.15. But then the council turns the tables and accuses Paul himself of violating the law by disrespecting the high priest. Verse 4. But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul references Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, and he backs off, not wanting to violate the law himself. But it does make sense that Paul would not have known who the high priest was, and we should take his words at face value, because much has changed in 20 years including the legitimate selection of the high priest, which has now become increasingly a puppet of Rome. In fact, this very high priest, Ananias, is told by Josephus, the Jewish historian, he's called greedy and hated by the Jews. And in AD 66, when the Jews rise up against Rome, it is the Jews themselves who will kill Ananias, the high priest. So Paul can already see that this so-called trial is going nowhere, and he has no chance of a fair hearing. So now what? Well, I find what's next to be incredibly striking. After all, how has Paul shown up, and what has he done at every opportunity that he has had to stand before people? He always shares the good news of the gospel He does it carefully. He does it skillfully. He does it wisely. He does it boldly. He did it in the synagogues of Damascus, in the streets of Jerusalem after his conversion, in the church in Antioch, in the synagogues of Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch. How about in Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Perga, Syria, Cilicia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berean, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, Phrygia, Troas, and so many others. Time after time, place after place, Paul did one thing. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we will hear in the coming weeks, as the story continues, that theme will continue before rulers and kings and all the way to Rome itself. But what about now? Here he is in Jerusalem, standing before the official high council of the Jewish people. And what does Paul do? Verse 6. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. 
And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Wow, what a scene. And what a surprising twist. In front of the entire Jewish council, Paul does not start with common ground. He doesn't go back through the history of the nation of Israel. He does not use his education, his experience, and his background as a Pharisee to teach carefully and skillfully, seeking to give the gospel the best opportunity of being heard. No, he just cuts straight to the chase. Verse 6 again. Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And boom, the council civil war is back on. And the good news of the gospel is the farthest thing from their minds. So, Did Paul blow it? Did he squander the opportunity of a lifetime? Hardly. Friends, God will never force anyone to be willing to hear his truth, receive his son, and respond to his plan. Unless a person is open to the good news, there is no strategy or technique on earth, be it careful or forceful, that will get the good news through the high walls of a closed heart. How can Paul possibly reason with these men regarding the resurrection of Jesus when more than half of the so-called leaders of God's people don't believe in any resurrection or even in a life-changing supernatural God? They are in no way open to hearing the good news, and Paul knew it. This was not an opportunity for the gospel. It was a trap set to try and kill Paul. And the rest of our text today will prove that true. So here we are. The council has erupted, and this scene is on the verge of getting really ugly. And who does God use to come to the rescue? We see once again that God can use even unbelievers to accomplish his purposes and to protect his people. Verse 10. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And there Paul sits in jail. Can you even imagine what that night would have been like for Paul? I mean, think of the buildup that we have seen toward this journey to Jerusalem. Now, Paul knew from the Spirit and from the prophecies that had been revealed that eventually he would end up being bound there. But I wonder if he thought it would all be over so quickly. A few minutes of sharing his testimony with a hostile crowd that had just severely beaten him. 
and three sentences, literally, spoken before the high council. And now here he is in jail. How often in our lives do we wonder, Lord, what in the world are you doing? How easy is it for us to think that God has abandoned us and failed us when things do not go our way? You ever had a dialogue like this in your head? Lord, I've sought to follow you and serve you. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do and things are a mess. Where are you, Lord? I'm hurt and confused and angry and I feel like you are a million miles away. It is so easy for life to not make sense. And in the confusion, it is so easy to question the goodness or even the greatness of God. Was God not able to deliver me? Or perhaps even worse, does he actually not love me? Does he not want to come to my aid? Where are you, O Lord? How many times have I written that in my journal over the years? And to be completely honest, I was having thoughts like that just a couple of weeks ago. You see, a couple of months ago when COVID was really beginning to wane, we thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. I want to get together with some of our LBC Asia staff for a time of leadership and spiritual coaching. And we thought, let's meet together in Dubai. And I was so glad for that opportunity with these guys. And it was a rich time as we thought about God and about what he has called us to in the work of his ministry. But none of us had the ability to foresee that Omicron was going to spike through the roof. And we're hearing more and more about this, so we're beginning to get a little bit concerned about getting out of there and getting back home. And so we are praying that God will not allow us to get COVID and that we'll all arrive home. And I'm so glad to tell you that our Asia leaders all made it back home. But a funny thing happened to me on the way to the airport. My mandatory pre-departure COVID test that was required to allow me to come back to the U.S. came up positive. Now, here's the thing. I had been diligently praying that God would get me home. God, you are able to do anything, even the impossible, no matter what it takes. I pray for a negative COVID test and to be able to go home. And even that morning in my scheduled Bible reading, I came across a verse that day that says, God will protect you and he will not let your foot be caught in a trap. And that is what I was reading on the way to the COVID test. Positive. God did not show up. He did not answer my prayer in the way that I wanted him to. And the next thing I knew, I found myself forced into a government-mandated quarantine in a foreign country, having to download an app that would track my every movement. And now all these other guys have left. I am completely alone with no one to help me. 
And then I wasn't even sure I was doing this right, so I got online to try to read some message boards about people's stories of being quarantined in Dubai. Not a good idea. And I started to read of horror stories of people being swept away in COVID taxis and taken to these terrible institutional places. And here I sit with a threat of nearly a $15,000 fine if I violate this quarantine. And oh, by the way, in my first two days of quarantine, Iranian-backed Houthi terrorists in Yemen decide to start firing missiles at targets right near where I sat. So I literally found myself sitting alone, trapped in a hotel room overseas, controlled by a foreign government right in the midst of a pretty dangerous part of the world. And I'm going to be honest with you. I sat there in tears as fear ran through my heart and my head, thinking of all that could go wrong. But such moments of life, where things seem to make no sense, are what make me so thankful for the key lesson that Acts 23 has for us. Verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now, there are very few words in verse 11 describing Paul's encounter with the Lord, but they do teach us some very important things. First, I love how the text said, the Lord stood at his side. What a picture. What a source of hope. In the midst of terrible circumstances where it seems like everything has gone wrong, Paul is not alone. God has not abandoned him. No, the Lord is right there standing at his side. Friends, we have been given a very important promise in Scripture. It's found in places like Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 and Romans 8. In Hebrews 13, it tells us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And in Romans 8, we read that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. And the context of that verse is so critical. You know, it's when things don't go well, when they don't go our way or how we want them to, that we are most prone to doubt the presence, the power, and the goodness of God. But the entire context of that promise in Romans is about trial and difficulty. Verses 35 and 36 say, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? 
And Paul goes on to then say, not even death or life or angels or demons or the future or the past or any powers or height or depth or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, no matter what you face or how bad things get, no matter how much you feel forsaken by God, you are not. If you are in Christ, he will never leave you. He will never abandon you. And here Paul sits in jail as living proof. Verse 11 again. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. In this very low moment in Paul's life and ministry, the Lord himself stood at his side. And man, it is a good thing that he had this moment of encouragement because things are about to get even worse. Verse 12. When it was day... The Jews formed a conspiracy and they bound themselves under an oath saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot and they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Wow. The level of hatred toward Paul and ultimately toward Jesus and the gospel is staggering. And the co-conspirators in this evil plan go all the way to the top. The council itself is culpable in playing a role in a plan to literally murder Paul. Think about that. These are supposedly, at the time, the most godly people on earth. They are called to be the leaders of God's people who uphold God's law and lead people to follow and serve the Lord. But instead, they are so steeped in power and corruption and so driven by fear and hatred that they will once again kill anyone who is a threat to their power, their position, or their religious perspective. I guess we shouldn't be surprised at this point. This pattern has now been repeatedly demonstrated in the Gospels and in Acts. But it makes it no less heartbreaking or sobering. For this wasn't just a first century problem. Remember two weeks ago, Brian talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Rachel Scott and the cost that some are called to pay for the sake of the Gospel. And here we are again reminded that there is very real opposition to the good news and some are even willing to kill to stop its spread. This is part of the fallen world we live in, so hostile to God. We must understand that and not be surprised by it. So now what? How will God show himself faithful to protect Paul? 
Well, as always, God is sovereign and he has a plan. Verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him aside by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. So what are the odds? I mean, did you even know Paul had a nephew? (laughs) I had no idea. And not only does he have a nephew, but somehow by the sovereign orchestration of God, he is in exactly the right place at the right time. Keep in mind, this is not some human ingenuity and planning. Paul is not coordinating a network to find out enemy intel. He's just sitting in jail. This is entirely God's doing. And it reminds us once again how God is able to do the impossible, the unthinkable to surprise us with his plan to deliver us and enable us to accomplish his mission. So in no time, Paul goes from almost being flogged by Claudius Lysias, who was the Roman commander, to now being protected by him. And Lysias is a shrewd commander who tells Paul's nephew, don't tell anybody that you've told me this, for Lysias wants to launch a surprise of his own on the unsuspecting Jews. Verse 23, And Lysias called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Gotta love the self-serving revisionist history there. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked him from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. The plan of the Jews was to ambush and kill Paul the next day. 
But Lysias outfoxes them. He launches a plan to get Paul out of Dodge that very day. And he is taking no chances, ordering a massive detachment of 470 to accompany and protect Paul. So at nine o'clock that night, under heavy, heavy guard, Paul is taken out of Jerusalem. Now, Caesarea is about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and they go just over halfway to Antipatris, and they stop there. Knowing that they are now far enough away from the Jewish plot, the next day they send back the contingent of 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen, and Paul is safely brought to Caesarea by the 70 mounted troops. And there he is presented to Felix, the governor. And we'll learn about the next chapter of the story next week. But wow, here in chapter 23, when it looked like things couldn't get any worse for Paul, God shows up in surprising and overwhelmingly powerful ways to bring about Paul's deliverance and even to begin his journey toward Rome. So, why? Why did God intervene? You know, Paul's heart, as is later recorded in his letter to the Philippians, is that it would be better to die and be with Jesus. So why didn't God just let Paul be martyred by the council as Stephen was? Because both Stephen's martyrdom and Paul's deliverance were a part of God's sovereign plan to build and advance his kingdom and accomplish his work on earth. And God was not yet finished accomplishing the work that he wanted to do in and through Paul in this world. And until God calls us home, he will be with us in this world as we partner with him to build his kingdom and accomplish his purposes. Which leads me back to verse 11. Look at that verse again. And let's notice a few important things that apply to our lives. First, notice that Luke is clear to say that the Lord came immediately on the very night following that disastrous day with the high council. You see, God does not leave us hanging. He is never late. And again, he is always ready to stand by our side. And you and I, we are never more than a choice away from being able to enter into the presence of Jesus to find comfort, peace, perspective, hope, and even joy. But it is up to us to make that choice. The struggle is not one of whether or not God will be with us. The struggle is whether or not we will actually seek him and find him in our time of need. Will we surrender to doubts and fears, unbelief and self-directed, self-preserving action? Or will we seek, will we seek solace, strength and direction from the very presence of God? 
Second, in verse 11, notice what God did not say to Paul as he stood with him. He did not say, hey, no worries, I've got this. I'm going to get you out of here. You'll be free tomorrow and back at the guest house on the strata lounger, eating pizza and nachos and watching the big game. No. The Lord said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You see, God is not ultimately committed to our comfort. He's just not. No, he has far greater things that he wants to do in us and for us and through us than just being comfortable and avoiding all trouble and trial. God is committed to building his kingdom and accomplishing his purposes on earth. And he is literally inviting each of us to be a part of his bigger plan. Now, does that mean we're just pawns in his heartless strategy? Of course not. He loves us. He created us on purpose, for a purpose. He intends to lead us into the life of greatest joy by partnering with him to build his kingdom and accomplish his purpose. But we must be willing. He will never force us. We can choose to fight relentlessly to protect and advantage ourselves. But Luke 9, 23 and 24 make it clear that all of our attempts to save our lives will only result in losing them. Or we can surrender to him. We can give ourselves fully to our good, good father and God, to his plan, his will, his way. And if we do, we get the incredible privilege of not only enjoying his abiding presence, but also the wonder of being powerfully used by him to help build and advance his kingdom and change the world. That is the purpose for which he created us and to which he calls us. By the way, do you notice that little hidden word of encouragement from Jesus to Paul? In verse 11, he affirms, that Paul did, in fact, accomplish God's purpose for him in Jerusalem. Did a revival break out? No. Did anyone come to Jesus? Not as far as we know. But he directly says that Paul did solemnly witness to my cause at Jerusalem. Job well done. Just because people didn't respond, doesn't mean that Paul failed. And the same is true for us. We cannot understand all that is happening from God's bigger per, uh, picture and perspective. And sometimes it may feel like our efforts are entirely in vain. But that perspective just might be completely off. Thus, we must continue by faith to seek and walk with and serve God as he leads us by his Holy Spirit, even when it looks like no one wants anything to do with us or the hope that we have found in Christ. 
Paul has been faithful. Even though the only visible result was being beaten and thrown in jail. But God was with Paul. And he will continue to be with Paul as he now calls him to move on toward Rome. And oh, by the way, how's God going to get him there? Well, he's arranged free passage and even personal security, all paid for by Caesar. But it's as a prisoner, not a seemingly free man. Of course, What does it really mean to be free? Does it mean getting to do whatever we want, whenever we want? Perhaps that is actually slavery to self. At least that's what God was showing me in Dubai. As I was sitting there, terrified, And that first day in my quarantine, I was trying to pray and process all that was running through my heart and my head with the Lord. And the Lord began to just gently help me. And it started by reminding me of what I had just spent a week teaching our South Asia leaders. We had just had this incredible time talking about the wonderful nature of the sufficiency of Christ, which means... That Jesus and Jesus alone is so good and so great that he can literally meet the deepest needs of our soul and bring us peace and rest and even joy no matter what happens in our circumstances. There I sat and the Lord began to say to me, well, Jeff, that was the classroom. Now here's the laboratory. Are you going to believe what you just taught? I had a choice. Surrender to all of my fears and doubts and all of that which could go wrong or choose to believe in the goodness, the power, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to care for me even when he said no to what I wanted. By his grace, his grace alone, I began to choose to say, God, I believe that even sitting For 10 days, just in the four walls of this hotel room, you are enough for me. That I can be here under the control of this foreign government, overseas, and totally alone, and that you can give me peace and rest and even joy. Friends, I got to tell you, God showed up in Dubai in an amazing way. I would honestly have to say that my 10 days of not leaving that hotel room were marked by joy. So much so that I actually was a little bit sad when my quarantine ended and I was released to leave that room. That is how good God is. But we have to acknowledge When I was in Dubai, things didn't go as I had planned or in accordance with my desire. God absolutely said no to that which I had beseeched him for. He did not show up in the way I wanted him to show up. Which must bring us back to the question I asked at the very beginning. Can we actually trust God? 
I mean, can we literally fully entrust ourselves to him? No matter what. No matter what he allows to happen in our world. No matter what he allows to happen in our lives. Can we actually trust God? No matter what. And the answer is absolutely yes. You see, true freedom and true life are not found in getting our way. They are not found in being able to perfectly order our lives and selfishly pursue our advantage at every turn. True freedom and true life are found in Him. He alone is sufficient to meet, sustain, and fully satisfy our souls no matter what circumstances He calls us to walk through in this world. Friends, that is incredible. And that is the life of faith. And just like Paul, we too can find true joy, true hope, and true purpose by following, serving, and partnering with Jesus as he builds and advances his kingdom on earth and accomplishes extraordinary purposes for our lives and through us for others in this fallen and broken world. God is absolutely worthy of our trust, no matter what. So I am all in with him. How about you? Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that you never leave us. You never forsake us. You never abandon us. Even if we feel a million miles from you, we are but one choice from experiencing the power of your presence and goodness. If we will but choose to trust that you are good and you are God and you are present and you are sufficient to meet and satisfy the deepest needs of our heart and soul regardless of what you choose to allow in our circumstances. Oh God, deliver us from a life that only believes you when you answer our prayers and make everything go okay. Enable us, Lord, to be people who see your amazing goodness and sufficiency that allows us to transcend any circumstance with joy. For your glory and for the good of a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.